I don't know how everybody else's week has gone. Mine has been stress-filled and uh, anxiety-ridden, and I'm feeling it this morning, so say a quick prayer for me. Uh, it's all first-world problems, so it's not like anything crazy is happening. Uh, before we get started with our new series, I do want to take a quick minute to just plug our worship Sundays, because um, frankly, uh, our attendance the past couple has not been great, and I just want to tell you from my perspective, from the church perspective, that is not a throwaway Sunday for us. I'm not saying that it necessarily is for you, but I want, you to, I want it to be clear, I want it to be known that we are not just throwing that Sunday away. We're doing it uh, very purposefully. And the purpose of those worship Sundays is to try to remove as many distractions as we possibly can so that you have an opportunity to meet with God. Whether you spend that Sunday here the entire time sitting in your chair in prayer, in meditation, whether you stand and worship with us, we want to be able to give you that time to not have to hear me speak, to not have to hear a lot of people speak, but to just worship and, and to try to connect. And so I want to say that as a means of encouragement to have you come here. Those Sundays are every bit as important as any Sunday I'm up here speaking. Um, I'm not saying that you come to hear me speak, but when you don't show up on worship Sundays, it fuels my ego and my head cannot afford to get any bigger. Um, I say that jokingly, but please, 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 as we approach those, as, as we get ready to, to come to those, understand that we want you to be here. It's a, it's a powerful time of prayer. It's a powerful time of worship. And like I said last week, uh, if, if you will give your attention to God, if you will give him the entirety of your focus for just that hour that we have every couple months or every month or so, if you will do that, I'm confident that not only will it be for your benefit, but that you will meet with God. And so we want to challenge you to be here on those days. Okay, so I have to say about that. I do have one announcement that I got late. I sent it to Jake late, so he didn't get it on his list. But we as a church are again collecting Stouffer's Stovetop Stuffing. And we ask that it be the name brand. We ask that it be the name brand. Okay, we're collecting 100 boxes. It's due by December 1st, so we have a little over a month. Okay, we did this last year for people helping people for their Christmas baskets. Basically what this goes to, it goes to being a part of a Christmas basket that will help a local family who is in need in that time of year who can't provide a Christmas meal on their own. And so if you, when you're at the store, uh, assuming that they're not all going to be sold out with some of the craziness that we're having. If you will grab an extra box or two to bring and donate through the church to people helping people here in Republic so that we can help people feed their family during the Christmas season, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. All right. All that stuff aside, we are starting a new series today, and I'm excited about it. We have titled it, This is Church. It is on 1 Thessalonians. It is a letter from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And it's a little different than a lot of his letters because it's pretty much just like filled with praise for the church and the job that they're doing and, and, and how they are withstanding persecution and just how they're operating. Usually when Paul sends a letter, he starts with a greeting and uh, we love you and we're praying for you and here's everything you have to fix, right? But, but with Thessalonica, this letter to 1 Thessalonians, the first letter he sends specifically, it, it's praising them for their actions and the things that they are currently doing. And so I think just for that reason alone, it's worth study. And there's a lot of good stuff, 
A lot of good stuff in First Thessalonians that I think is practical for our lives, not just in the church, but every day. And so uh, I'm glad that you're here. We are going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 1 today, verse 1 through 10, which I, if I remember right, is pretty much the whole chapter. This is what it says. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and, your, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia? Achaia? It's a hard one. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living, true God and to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, this passage, this first chapter, to me, as a, as a football coach, it reminds me of a really good pregame speech. It has the three parts I think every pregame speech really needs. First of all, Paul reminds them of their strengths. Here's what you have done good. He encourages them to use and rely on their strengths through their upcoming endeavors. And then lastly, he ends by focusing on their previous victories. And there's a lot of takeaway from these 10 verses. It's just 10 verses, but they are 10 powerful verses. And as I was studying this week, I couldn't get much farther past verse 2 without really having to stop and contemplate its impact for us as Christians and as people. It says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And the question that kept popping up in my mind, and it was one of self-reflection, but it's one I want to offer to you because I think it's important. What do people think of when they think of you? Are you a source of gratitude or a source of grief? Are you a source of gratitude or a source of grief? Are you being prayed for? Are you being prayed for? It's a little different, right? It's a little different. Like there's praying for people. We're like, Lord, if you would just let them get hit by a bus. Don't tell anybody I asked for it, but I really need them out of my life, right? There's that type of prayer. Don't act like you haven't done it at least once. You're a liar. You're in church. You know where liars go. Just, just saying. It's in Revelation. It's hot. Don't lie. Right? And then we know what it's like to really be impacted by a person, to have them change our lives, to have benefited from their presence, to have been built up by them, and to praise God for them. You see, the church at Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. They were being praised for, not prayed for. And there's a major distinction there. And as Christians, I think that it needs to be our goal. As people, as people, you don't have to be a Christian. As people, it's, it's a good goal. It's a worthy pursuit 
to live life in such a way that people praise for you being in their life rather than having to pray because you are a part of their life. And that needs to be our end goal. That needs to be our focus. We should strive for our presence to benefit the lives of others rather than be a source of contention. And the Thessalonians, they were seen this way because, as Paul goes on, they, were, they personified the triad. What's the triad? And the question that we have from this is, does your life testify to the triad? See, the triad is divinely inspired faith, hope, and love. It's a common theme that we see throughout Scripture. They are so often connected together because they are very, very entwined. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Thessalonians were being remembered and praised for their work produced by faith. Faith is not produced by works. That's a very important tenet of Christianity. We explain to people that you don't make it to heaven based on how you live your life. And I believe that. There are going to be people in hell who lived great lives, who were nice and considerate and loved others, but had no faith in God. And if you're to believe Christianity's teachings, we know that if you don't place your faith in God, then we are taught that our eternity is in hell. So that's the one option, right? Works don't save us. Our faith in God does. But here's the thing. If we truly believe in God, if we truly have faith that Jesus Christ came to walk on this earth, to show us how to live life, to die for us on a cross so that we could experience forgiveness and so that everyone else could experience forgiveness. If we truly believe that, then it will impact the way that we live our lives and the things that we do. And therefore, if we have faith, we must also have works. We must also have works because faith without works is what? Dead. It's dead. And so we will know others by the fruit that they bear. Now I could stand up here in front of you and claim to be a vegetarian, right? I could say, oh, I only eat vegetables. Be one or two things happen. Either they're all getting fried or I'm lying. You don't get this physique without meat. You know what I mean? Like Murica, right? There's some beef in my diet. You will know me by the fruit that they bear. I could sit here and claim to be a fitness fanatic, but I kind of look like an upside-down bowling pin walking around some days, so it doesn't exactly match up. Someone could tell you they love you, but their life doesn't bear witness to that. You're not going to believe it. Amen, Evelyn. I hear you, girl. We will know people by the fruit that they bear. And here's the cool thing about the Thessalonians. Their works, when you break it down, you get to the original languages. Their works were actually a property of their faith. Not just inspired by, owned by. 
Their works were owned by their belief. These Thessalonians, they acted because of their unwavering belief in Paul's teachings that Christ was the Son of God. And in their belief that they should live life as a reflection of how Christ lived his life and who Christ was. And it was so pure. It was so pure that they didn't get the credit. Not the Thessalonians that are getting the credit. It is their faith that gets the credit. And because their faith is what gets the credit, it is their God that gets the credit. I stand before you today called to be a pastor because of nothing that I have done. If you pay attention to my foundation, to to my roots, to the way that I live life, probably should be in prison, not a pastor. I'm going to make that a t-shirt. James, get on it. Probably should be in prison, not a pastor. But God, but God, changed everything. Faith changed everything. And the Thessalonians were a credit to their God. You see, they left their idols. They left their customs. They left their comfort to serve a Christian God. And all they got for it was persecution. And they faced tremendous persecution. So much so that as we continue to read in Thessalonians, we'll see that Paul and Silas and Timothy had to write this letter because they ended up fleeing. Persecution was so great that they skedaddled out of there, right? Not their homeland, not where they live, not where they've established roots, not where, where, where they're doing business, right? Not where they are surviving. They got out of there. But the Thessalonians stayed. And in the midst of this tremendous persecution, they didn't waver. Not for a second. At least at the time of this first letter. What a testimony to their belief. What a testimony to their belief. You know, our head football coach at Sarcoxy, Coach Ellis, he, he tells our boys this quote a lot. He says that a measure of a man, you will know the measure of a man by how he behaves when things get tough, not by how he behaves when things are going well. People will measure you your character, who you are as a person, by how you behave when things are not going well, not when things are going great. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to be brutally honest, I fail a lot of times at that. I get overwhelmed. I get anxious. I lose sight of faith and hope and sometimes love because it's just too much for me. And so here is this faith, this tremendous faith, now paired with their labor that is prompted by love. The literal translation would be toil. Their toil, toil is such a better word in my mind. You have labor unions, right? They were toil unions, a little more impactful. Just saying. Consider changing those names. But they were struggling. Because of their love for others, they toiled in the midst of persecution. They fought through it. They continued to reflect Christ, even though at every turn, people were persecuting them. We're trying to stop their belief. We're trying to stop their actions. At times, we're trying to take their lives because 
of this faith and because of this love. We see it later in the first chapter in verse 9 where he says, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, right? Paul says, I don't even have to talk about how you guys are doing because it's being reported to us. Everybody is talking about it, about how strong your faith is, about how strong your love is, about your endurance. Everyone is mentioning it. And they tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So what do the Thessalonians teach us about love? Something that I know I have said numerous times on this stage, that true love persists through hardship. True love persists through hardship. It doesn't let a little persecution get in its way. You know, as teachers, because I'm a teacher, you know I'm a teacher outside of this place, and we have a lot of teachers in this building this morning. And if you're not a teacher and you work at another place, you'll be able to connect to this as well. But as teachers, as employees in general, we have to deal with a lot of bureaucracy, right? We have to jump through all the hoops. We have to check all the boxes. We have to do all the things a certain way. And sometimes it's not what's best for our kids. And that's the biggest struggle that I have had and that a lot of teachers have had about being a teacher because you spend all day long with your kids. And while school is in session, you spend way more time with people's kids than they ever do. And you've got the man and woman in the high tower barking down orders that haven't stepped foot in your classroom and don't really know what your kids need, right? And you're having to, to, to battle against this and, and walk this fine line of doing what you're told to do and what you're asked to do, but also doing what's best for your kids. Like I said, if you worked in another industry, you know what that's like to have a higher up say, well, this is how you should do it. And it's not really a way that functionally works. It's not the best way to operate. But as a teacher, when you're dealing with this, sometimes you have to take a risk to say, I'm going to do exactly what's best for my students, come hell or high water, regardless of what happens to me. I know this is best for them. And my love for them is going to persist through this hardship. I'm going to toil through this persecution. And it can be really difficult. But love never lets a little persecution get in its way. It doesn't worry about society's conditions. Right? We work with a lot of ministries that a lot of church, churches will not touch. Because it's not PC. And maybe some of the people we're working with don't make money in the most Christ-like way. Or we can't really help provide food for these people because come up with some stupid excuse. That's not how our God operates. It's not how we should operate. Love doesn't look for an easy way out. I know I said I would do this, but it's really not convenient for me. And a lot of things came up and now I just don't want to anymore. So... I'm going to use all these other excuses to weasel my way out of a commitment I just made. Here's the most important part. Love is proven by action. It's proven by action. My mom is watching. She'll be frustrated with this for me. But, um, you know, every time I get off the phone with my mom, I say, Mom, I love you. Now she always says it back. But she used to say just, okay, a lot. <laughs> mom, I love you. Okay. And then she'd hang up. One day I called her right back. I was mad. Mom, you do this a lot. I told you I love you. 
And you didn't say I love you back. And she got emotional. I wasn't ready for that. So then I felt bad. I was like, whoop, shouldn't have called, right? And she said, I don't always say it because I would rather show it. I have been told a lot in my life the words, I love you. But they have rarely at times been backed up by action. And so they became empty. And I don't ever want to say it just to say it. I don't want those words to be empty. So then I became a blubber mess. I was like, well, I want you to say it anyways. Right? So now she does. But she also lives a life in a way that tells me every single day that she loves me. She calls me just to check in on me. Right? Make sure that I'm okay while she's not living the easiest life either. That's what love, true love, is like. How can we claim to love the poor if we never serve the poor? What if our first thought is always get a job? Everywhere's hiring. Meanwhile, they don't have clothes, they don't have somewhere to live, they don't have a bank account. Maybe they can't remember their social security number and they don't have their card. All these things that you know you kind of have to put on an employment application in order to be hired in the first place. And we wonder why they don't just get work. Because it's so easy. How can we claim to care about the widow but make them someone else's responsibility? Oh, it's really tough. I'm sorry that you lost your significant other, that lost your spouse. Sure hope things get better. As we're going to talk about here in a second, hope. Hope is more than just a wishful thought. It's a known expectation of a certain outcome. So why don't you be that certain outcome? And I want you to know I could be saying this sermon in front of a mirror, so it's not perfect pastor talking to pitiful people, alliteration, right? I'm talking to myself as well, but guys, isn't it time we put our money where our mouth is? I know we're trying to do that as a church. I know a lot of you as individuals live that life all day long, 24-7 outside of these walls. I know that, but we can all be better. We can always be better. So why not try to improve. How can we claim to love the hungry and never feed them? How can our faith produce works and our love produce action in the midst of persecution? Thessalonians answer that question. Because of our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, hope, the literal expectation for them was the coming of Christ. And their confidence in the coming of Christ allowed them to persevere through the persecution for others that for others would have halted their movement. The Christian, therefore, and the church, ideally is marked by three things. Faith, hope, and love. People not, might not be able to say a lot about you, but they should be able to speak of your faith. They should be able to know of your hope and they should have witnessed your love. 
through these three things that we prove our God. All right? I don't know how many of you guys are geometry buffs, but I happen to love math. And in geometry, it's filled with proofs. Proofs, right? You're required to prove. How do you make this statement? How can you possibly make this statement to get from point A to point B? You have to provide a proof. You have to prove it. And that is what I mean when I talk about our faith. When we tell people that Jesus is the Son of God, we tell people that they are sinners and that they need to be forgiven. We have no shot in them ever coming to that same belief if there is no proof in our life. We have to prove our God over and over by our show of faith and hope and love. It's through these three things that we enact change. Why are they so important? Well, first and foremost, they're eternal qualities of an eternal God. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, hey, another letter of Paul, says, and now these three remain. Literal translation, last forever. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. Makes sense, right? Because the two greatest commandments, we talk about those all the time too. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Would make sense that it's the greatest. But those three things remain forever. They are eternal. And without faith, we cannot please God. How do I know that? Great question. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. See where I got it? It's almost like it lined up exactly. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is a prerequisite. And hope and faith and love are so deeply intertwined. Kyle Blevins is a Christian author. He states, faith is the belief that there is something better to seek, while hope is the expectation or the certainty. I would just take out the expectation and say hope is the certainty, but it's his quote, not mine, that it is there. So faith is the belief that there is something better to seek. Hope is the certainty or the expectation that it is there. And hope is the fuel that keeps faith alive in our quest to find love. Can't have one without the other. Pretty sure that's a song somewhere. I don't, maybe bad song. Forget I said it. In the end, in the end, our goal is love. That's what it's about. That's what the church, the Thessalonian church was about. It was about loving others so that they might experience the Christ that the Thessalonian church now had. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the book of Thessalonians and for the lessons that we are about to partake in as we go through this five-week study. 
God, there is so much to be taken from your word, so much that we can practically apply to the way that we live our lives. No one has it easy. Everyone has struggles. Everyone has strife. Yes, we can measure it out, and some have worse circumstances than others, but God, life is tough. It just is. But in those instances, as we are living life, as believers in God, we have these three things. Faith, that God loves us. Hope, that we will be rewarded for our faith by getting to spend eternity with you in love. Love that doesn't disappear in the face of persecution. Love that isn't timid. It is fierce. It is powerful. It is gracious. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that any one of us has to do to earn it. That's just your character. That's who you are. You love us. And it's hard for us to make sense of because that's not how our brains work. That's not how our world works. But it's how you want it to be. And as believers, aren't we supposed to be representations of you? Shouldn't each of us, as we walk throughout our lives and the different areas that we find ourselves, represent faith, hope, and love? And represent Christ. There's so much darkness, so much darkness, but we all have the opportunity to be little lighthouses wherever we go, to light the way, to show others that there is something different and that it's not rooted in selfishness, it's not rooted in, in pride, it's not rooted in wanting to be right or making others feel bad. but it's rooted in faith and it's rooted in hope. And most importantly, it is rooted in love. God, maybe we be people, maybe we be a church that loves you with all our heart and loves others the way that we would want to be loved. If we as a church are granted nothing else, God, I pray that we be a reflection of these three things and in doing so, become a reflection of you. I ask for these things. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. We're gonna worship. It's appropriate. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. We're gonna worship. But you may have needs. And I believe that when you pray to God, he can intercede on your behalf. I believe it with all my heart. As much as I believe that at times I look like an upside down bowling pin. I truly believe it. And so if you have a need, I encourage you to come pray with me. Jake Wilburn is going to be standing right back over there. Ali, can I be over here? Ali's going to be over here. You don't have to come up in front of everybody and pray. Go to the sides and pray. If you have a need, go pray. If you want to come pray with me, I would be honored.
Maybe you need to have a conversation about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. No better time than the present. Otherwise, stand with us now. Worship. Question God. Ask him if he's real. Ask him if what I said was true. Stand with me now.